the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 3 through 21. We're continuing in the sermon series, I Will, Five Commitments of Every Christian. We come now to the fourth of those five. That fourth commitment being, I will serve and care for my church. You remember a few weeks ago we started with, I will worship with my church family. Uh, second week, we, um, we looked at, I will, who remembers what it was? Totally spaced it. Humble. I will be humble and obedient. Thank you. Excellent. Very good. Last week, uh, who remembers what last week was? I will pray. Uh, I will support the gospel work of my church through prayer and financial giving. Very good. Y'all are paying attention. And this week, I will serve and care for my church. We're going to find in Romans chapter 12, now there are plenty of places through the New Testament that we could find this commitment illustrated, but I think Romans 12, 3 through 21, illustrates it well for us. But we'll find here in this passage that those who have been called to salvation in Christ and to His body have been also gifted by Christ through the Holy Spirit. And the gifts that Christ gives to Christians, He has given uh, for the service and the care of His body, the church. Not for personal gain, not for personal advancement or or advancement of personal reputation, uh, but to care for and to serve one another together in the gospel. As we explore, dig into Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 21, I hope that as a result, we would begin to actively look for ways to use God's gifts for the maturing, for the encouragement, and for the care of our brothers and sisters as a family of faith. Having said that, let's go ahead and look at uh, Scripture this morning and this fourth of these five commitments. Would you stand with me if you're comfortably able as we read Romans 12, verses 3 through 21? The Apostle Paul writes this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God bless us as we look at his word this morning. You may be seated. I will serve and care for my church. 
The entire premise of this sermon this morning, serving and caring for the church, rests upon, before we even look at this passage of Scripture in depth, rests upon the foundational commitment and understanding that those who are a part of the church, those who are members of any local church, especially those who believe and teach the gospel that we do, that those who belong to a church that way are already uh, uh, followers of Jesus. The, the words that we read this morning about Christ giving gifts to the church and calling one another to love with sincerity and abhor what is evil, so on and so forth, these are words for Christians. These are words for those who have recognized that God has made us for a relationship with Him. That we in our sin, in our rebellion against God, seeking to be the sole authority over our own lives, we have displaced God, we've sinned against Him, and in so doing we've broken relationship with Him. These words are for those broken sinners who realize their, their separation from God and have trusted in His plan to save, to redeem, to rescue us from sin. These words are for those who have looked to Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead so that by believing in Him we can have forgiveness of our sins and a right relationship with God. These words are for us this morning. So, friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've not yet committed your life and faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and submitted to his will, you may feel a little bit disconnected from this passage this morning. But I hope that what you would see, if you're not yet a believer, is an illustration of what the Christian life looks like how Christians relate to one another, and how God cares for His church by giving gifts to Christians for their mutual service and love and care for each other. Christian, my attention now goes primarily to you. As we look first at verses 3 through 9, and we see that God gifts individuals to serve the body. The commitment we're looking at today as a Christian is that I will serve and care for my church. And we see that God gives gifts to individual Christians for the service of the body of Christ, the church. We see in verses 3 through 5 that the church is Christ's earthly physical representative. Notice how Paul begins in verse 3 by encouraging the church towards sincere and abiding humility. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. With a sober mind, Christians are to think about themselves, not with the kind of intoxication of being egoholics, right? The church is rather to consider themselves rightly and to consider others more highly than themselves. Understand, Christian, this morning that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not being a doormat for others to walk over. Rather, humility is thinking rightly about yourself and highly of others. All through the lens of faith in Christ who himself used his position and his power to humble himself to the point of death on a cross for our sins so that we, by his power, that we, by his position, might have our sins paid for and receive by faith in him a restored relationship with God. Humility and living in humility with other Christians is not being a doormat to them, not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking rightly of yourself and thinking highly of others. Now, because the church of Jesus Christ is made up of all those who have placed faith in him, they are united to Christ by their faith and also to one another. Isn't that interesting? Listen to how Paul fleshes out this this idea, this concept of being united to Christ in faith and thereby united to one another in another place of Scripture. In his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, Paul says this, 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. All of this Paul uses to illustrate the picture that we who have been united to Christ Christ by faith have also been united to each other. Though we are very different, though there there is much diversity among us, there is unity in our faith in Christ. And God, by his own intention and in his own wisdom, puts bodies of Christ, local bodies, local congregations of believers together in diverse ways to illustrate and to magnify his own glory. That people who who otherwise, sinners in the world, have no business relating to one another can, by common profession of faith in Christ, have the one most important thing in common. The reason that Paul presses for humility and grace and unity among the body of Christ is because the Christian church, created by the Word of God through faith in Christ, is the physical representation of Christ on earth. The New Testament calls the church the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the flock of Christ, the household of God, other names as well. Because we as Christians are so intimately identified with Jesus because of our faith in Him, we must, it is imperative that we represent Him well through continued faith, continued humility, grace with one another, and unity around the gospel. There's an old song that reminds Christians of their need for individual holiness, for grace toward others, because as the song goes, you're the only Jesus some may ever see. Well, while there's some truth to that song, it ultimately fails to recognize that Scripture rarely addresses individual Christians as representatives of Jesus, but almost always speaks to the whole gathering of local churches when calling them all collectively ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. A Lone Ranger Christian can only represent Christ in the world as adequately and as accurately as a severed hand can represent the innermost thoughts and character of the now one-handed man that it used to be attached to. The hand that rests in the belly of the crocodile in Neverland does not represent Captain Hook very well at all. Rather, each member must be attached to the body to represent and reflect all the the, the totality, the unity of it all. The church, as one body, is meant to uh, be Christ's physical representation in the world. But secondly, Christ gives to the body his representative, his bride. He gives gifts to the body's members that are for the health of the body. We see this in verses 6 through 9. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, because God has made the church to be the collective representative of Christ in the world, he has, by his grace, given the body the means to care for itself. Paul speaks in these verses about gifts of God's grace. We often call them spiritual gifts, by which we mean skills, abilities, capabilities, capacities that are given to believers by the Holy Spirit of God. 
I would like to call these not spiritual gifts, but grace gifts. And here's why. The word gifts that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 12 is the Greek word charismata, which shares the same root as the Greek word for grace, which is charis. The Greek word for grace is charis. The Greek word for gifts, for spiritual gifts, is charismata. So I'd like to call these not spiritual gifts, but grace gifts. These are gifts of God's grace. Now, they're facilitated and, and brought to us through the Holy Spirit. I'm not denying that. But I think grace gifts gives us a different perspective on what it is and why it is that, that God gives us these things. Paul mentions seven of these grace gifts by name. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and acts of mercy. There are two other places in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, where Paul gives other similar lists, but different. Different lists of these grace gifts, of these spiritual gifts. Now, the point here is that this list and the list in 1 Corinthians 12 and the list in Ephesians 4 are not meant to be exhaustive lists of all of the gifts that God gives, but illustrative lists of the ways that the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, gifts the church to love and care for itself. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, we see the reason for these gifts, that they're not to be used for personal edification or for personal advancement, but rather for the, the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 7, Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, a grace gift for the common good. Gifts are to be used, the grace gifts that God gives us, the spiritual gifts that He has endowed us with, Christian, are to be used for the good of others. So this morning, Christian, you who know Christ, you who trusting that you've been enabled by the grace of God, uh, gifted in particular ways to serve the church, this morning I exhort you to consider how God has uh, created you and how God has gifted you to serve the church. And then, in considering how God has gifted you and made you able to serve the church, then look around the church and take initiative to serve where needed and helpful. The theologian... Wayne Grudem defines spiritual gifts this way, and I find this helpful. He says, A spiritual gift, a grace gift, is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church to equip the church to carry out its ministry until Christ returns. That's an awesome definition. Super simple, very relatable, totally understandable, takes all the mysticism kind of out of it so that I can actually relate to what spiritual gifts are. Let me repeat that definition. A spiritual gift, a grace gift, is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church to equip the church to carry out its ministry until Christ returns. Now, a good many Christians have become wrongly fixated on the issue of these grace gifts in their lives as they take every spiritual gifts inventory ever created under the sun to determine what particular gift that they have been given. Having pinned down that gift, they then use their gifts often as excuses, excuses not to serve in the church or in other needed ways, saying things like, well, you know, I would serve in the nursery, but that's just not my gifting. I've known people who have claimed to have the gift of discernment or the spiritual gift of prophecy, and most of the time it was used to tell other people why they were wrong, and I was like, you're not, I don't think you're gifted with prophecy or discernment, I think you're just a jerk. Right? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, not for the common discouragement, but the common encouragement. Amen. Gifts are not given to us as excuses not to do other things. They're given to us as enablements to do the things that God has called us to do. Now, my intention today is the same as Paul's in Romans 12. 
which is not to give an exhaustive list of the gifts, nor is my intention to be dogmatic about who is gifted how or whether our spiritual gifts are altogether separate from our natural gifting and abilities. We could spend hours talking about just those things, but rather my intention this morning from Romans 12 is to say that if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been gifted by God's grace with capabilities and abilities, capacities that have been given to you to be used in service to the church. These gifts, these grace gifts, are not excuses not to serve. Nor are they entitlements for supposed loftier forms of service. Well, I've been given the gift of teaching, so I can't be bothered to clean the toilets this week. In a very real sense, these grace gifts are not for you at all, Christian, but rather for the church so that others may be edified and built up in the faith and in unity as we humbly use what God has given to glorify Him and to build others up. Remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking rightly about yourself and more highly of others. And living in humility with one another is to use the gifts that God has given us, the gifts of His grace, to serve, to lift up, to edify our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what if you're a follower of Jesus? What if you're a Christian, but you don't know how God has gifted you? What then? Well, three things. First, pray that God, sincerely pray, that God would make clear to you how he has enabled you to serve the church in a way that advances our ministry. Not how has God gifted you to be more prominent or more popular or to have a place of influence in the church, but pray to God asking him, God, how have you gifted me? What have you done in my life? How have you made, created me, enabled me by the Holy Spirit to serve the church and advance the cause of the gospel? Secondly, seek insight in the wisdom of others. Talk with your spouse or your children or a fellow Bible study group member, maybe a close Christian friend. Make an an appointment with Pastor Danny or me to talk and pray through this matter. Pray to God asking for uh, discernment about how he is leading you to serve the church. And then talk to other trusted uh, brothers and sisters, members of our church. Uh, Make an appointment with Pastor Danny or I to talk through this. Seek the wisdom from other trusted brothers and sisters. Then third, seek out opportunities to serve. It's not entirely or altogether uncommon to discover your gifts as you are serving. Sometimes God deems it necessary in his wisdom to show you how he's made you to serve as you are serving. So not to give you an answer up front, but to simply say, come serve and I'll show you along the way. So pray that God would make it clear to you how he's enabled you for ministry. Seek insight from, from others and then look for opportunities to serve. If someone, if a leader in our church asks you to serve in a certain way, Don't look for answers to say or reasons to say no. Just say yes and trusting that God will give you wisdom and guidance and direction that he'll either edify you in your service or he'll use that opportunity to continue to show you how he has gifted you to serve the church. God gifts believers to serve the body, to make us more capable, more uh, effective ambassadors for Christ. But we see also in Romans 12 that God calls believers to care for others. So he, he not only calls us to use the gifts that he's given for edification of the church, but also to, he, he has called us together to care for one another. Yep, We're to care for one another two particular ways, internally, or care for others two different ways, by showing internal grace and by demonstrating external grace. By that I mean we show grace to one another within the body of Christ and we show grace to others outside the body of Christ. Looking first at how God calls us to care for each other with internal grace, We look at verses 9 through 12 of Romans 12 and verses 15 and 16. 
Paul says here, he gives 13 rapid-fire, machine-gun-style exhortations to the church. Are you ready? Buckle up. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. (laughs) Right? He's just mowing you down with exhortations here. In just these three or four verses, I need, to, I need to incorporate machine gun noises into more sermons, I think. In these just four or five verses, Paul gives 13, 13 exhortations to the church pertaining to how they are to relate to one another. But the overarching thing, now we could take time and preach an entire sermon on each of these, but I don't think we need to uh, this morning. Rather, we can look at the overarching theme of these exhortations. The overarching theme being mutual love and mutual care for one another within the church. Look at all the one another's. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So on and so forth. Contribute to the needs. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Such a manner of living is accomplished with sincere brotherly love. Like doing this happens when we really love one another, when we pursue what is good with each other, when we honor the humble, when we persevere in spirit for the sake of the Lord. It happens as we rejoice in hope and be patient in times of tribulation, being constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the others. This is how the church expresses the grace of God toward each other. So as you look around the room this morning, at your brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of this church, Read verses 9 through 12 and apply them to yourself toward others. Apply them to yourself in the way that you relate to everyone else in our congregation. Verses 15 and 16 especially speak to the kind of shared life, communal life that believers are to have within the church, this kind of internal grace. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Mutual rejoicing, mutual mourning, are marks of the Christian community. Have you ever thought about it that way? Oftentimes we think about rejoicing together. Yeah, that's a mark of Christian unity. But I don't know if all too often we think about mourning, grieving, crying with one another as a mark of the Christian community, as a mark of Christian maturity, but it is. All this goes to reinforce the communal body life of the church. All are connected to Christ by faith in Him and all are connected to one another as members of each other. If one part of the body hurts, the other parts of the body move to console it. If one part of the body is strong, all the rest rejoice in and benefit from its strength. Moreover, as a result, the whole body then is to pursue harmony, Paul says. That means thinking like one another, having the same mind, by avoiding arrogance and exalting the humble. Remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking rightly about yourself and highly of others. Paul's purpose here is not to give a laundry list of things to do in the church in verses 9 and 12, but rather to give an illustrative list, a a sort of collective picture, if you will, of what the life of the Christian community ought to look like. We, as members of First Baptist West Albuquerque, ought to seek to make our church identifiable as these things from Romans Romans 12, verses 9 through 12. When people from the outside look at us, they ought to see genuine love. They ought to see people who hate what is evil. They ought to see those who hold fast to what is good and who love one another with brotherly affection. They ought to see a group, a family of believers in Christ who are outdoing one another and showing honor in a world that seeks to do nothing but dishonor other people. 
They should see people who are zealous and fervent in spirit to serve the Lord. They should see those who are rejoicing in hope and being patient in times of trouble. Those outside the body of Christ ought to look at First West and see that we are people who are constant in prayer and regularly contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality to one another. They ought to see us rejoicing when others rejoice and weeping when others weep. I'm reminded at this point of Christ's exhortation to his disciples in John 13, 35, when he says that all men will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Grace and loving care, shared and freely given, are to be the clear evidence that we are following Jesus. How will the world know that we are disciples of Christ? Certainly as we declare the gospel, yes, but also as they see how we live among one another, how we love one another, care for each other within the body, doing the things, being the people that Paul describes in Romans 12, verses 9 through 12. The command to give gracious care to one another, however, cannot happen without authenticity, without genuineness, without sincerity. By this I mean we cannot fulfill the call to weep with those who weep if each of us holds fast to the wrong-headed notion that Christians, when they gather, must always appear like they've got it all together. Paul tells the church to let love be genuine. That means literally let love be without hypocrisy. Just as Christians are not to extend a, a masked or a veiled kind of love to those who are suffering, likewise, those who are suffering ought not to hide behind a mask of false strength. It must be okay among us as Christians to not be okay. But it will never be okay to not be okay if we live under the assumption that Christians never suffer. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And what that means is when we're rejoicing, we need to let others know that we're rejoicing. And when we are weeping, when we are grieving, when we are mourning, we need to let other people see the pain and the suffering that we are going through so that they can be obedient to weep with us. But none of that will happen if we're always pretending like everything's okay all the time. Like life from Monday to Saturday is just hunky-dory and everything's perfect and I have no problems and my kids are well-behaved and I never do anything to disappoint my wife. All of those are lies. And if I'm here with my brothers and sisters in faith putting on that picture of how my week is going all the time when in reality it's oftentimes the opposite, I'm not giving you all the opportunity to rejoice when I rejoice and to weep when I'm weeping. Likewise, if all of you come with, with this pretense or, or, or this feeling like you've got to come in and show to every, everyone else in the church that everything is okay, that our life is just fine, that our, all of our marriages are perfect and all of our kids are doing wonderful in school and we don't have any problems with our neighbors, if all of us are pretending that that is the reality, we will never be able to be obedient to the words of Scripture to weep with those who weep. Our love will never be genuine. We'll never be able to outdo one another with with. Uh, in showing honor and loving one another with brotherly affection because everything will be fake. Christian love is genuine. Christian love is authentic. Christian love lets down barriers so other Christians can see where we're hurting, see where we're strong, and benefit from those things and minister to us in those times of difficulty. God calls His body to care for one another with grace internal. He also calls us to care for others with external grace. So turning the love and the care that we have for one another, taking it and also turning it outside to those who are outside the church, those who are not yet believers. This we see illustrated in verses 14 through 21. These verses, with the exception, I think, of verses 15 and 16, speak generally to how Christians should approach their cultural opponents. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I don't think that Paul is assuming that there are persecutors of Christians inside the church, right? That that's, I don't think he's assuming that that's a normal thing. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Drink, For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 14, this word about blessing those who persecute you gives clear evidence to the fact that uh, the church in Rome uh, had already begun to experience persecution from outside. Whether that was governmental persecution or just sort of social, cultural opposition to the faith, we, we can't say entirely, but the church was feeling pressure from outside uh, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But the proper response to the persecution that they are receiving is not to give evil in recompense. It's not to pay evil back for evil, but rather to give a blessing to those who seek to do wrong to the church. Verse 17 says essentially the same thing, but with the added uh, command to think always about what is right and what is honorable, irrespective of how the Christian is treated. Insofar as it is possible, Paul says in verse 18, believers are to pursue peaceful lives with those outside the church, which will indeed come if our intent is to be and to bring a blessing to all whom we encounter, whether they be fellow Christians or enemies of Christ. If we live in the world in such a way as seeking to be a blessing to others, we ought to be able to find ourselves living a peaceful and quiet life. When the Christian is reviled, as certainly they were in the early church and continue to be around the world today, as we see in verse 19, when the Christian is reviled, he is to leave retaliation and injustice to God. He is to leave vengeance to the Lord. Friends, understand this. And and particularly as we find ourselves living in a culture that is more and more divided along political lines and those sorts of things, as we enter into what will uh, undoubtedly be another very hot electoral season, understand this, that vengeance is not a Christian virtue. But benevolence is. Rather than responding to those who are opposed to us, to those who are against us, rather uh, than responding in a manner seeking justice for ourselves or to justify ourselves in their sight, the Christian is to be a blessing to all. Understand this this morning, friends. Though some in the world may be enemies of Christ, and though they may insult and belittle and even persecute you as a follower of Christ, you may not, you do not have permission to look on such persons as beyond the uh, reach of God's grace. You may not look upon them who hate you as outside the capacity for God to save. You do not have license to look upon them as persons undeserving of your grace or God's. Rather, we are to treat those who are enemies of Christ and may have set themselves up as enemies to us, not by erecting protective walls of seclusion that we might keep our precious Christian bubble secure, but rather we are to treat them like God has treated us, who demonstrated His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, He extended His grace by sending Christ to die for us. That is the kind of love, that is the kind of grace we are called to extend outside the body as well as within. Christian this morning, knowing that God has called you to be a part of the body of Christ, the local church. 
Commit this morning to serve and to care for your church body. Make it a point to know and be known by your church family. And then care for one another like the family that we are. We can't serve, we can't care for one another if we don't make efforts to, be, to, to know others that are in our church and to be known by them. And certainly not if we don't seek to actually care for them like the family we are, that, that we are. Likewise, dear friends, Christians, brothers and sisters of First Baptist West Albuquerque, help one another to extend grace to difficult people outside the church. As God has called us to care for one another internally, He's also called us to show grace to those who are outside the church. And we can't do that on our own. We need the help of God and we need the help of our other brothers and sisters to encourage us to be gracious to those who may hate us, to those who may be opposed to us, to those who may revile us, to be gracious to those who may be skeptical of God and to go to great lengths to compel them to see the truth of the gospel, the love of God to us in Christ. I want to give you one thing to do if you haven't already in order to fulfill your commitment to serve and care for the church, to, being, to knowing and being known by your church family. The best way that you can begin to do that today, to show care to the church, to know and be known by others in the church body, is to join a small group Bible study. That is the most practical way that I can give to you this morning to begin to develop relationships with other people in our church, to share faith with them, to rejoice with them when they're rejoicing, to weep with them when they're weeping. It's very, very difficult for a room of 150, 160 people to do that all together in the way that we do in corporate worship. I'm not saying that we can't, it's just more difficult. But it's far more easy to serve others in the body, to care for others in the body, when we're uh, known by by people specifically and in relationship. So if you've not yet joined a Sunday morning Bible study group, a Sunday school class, do it. Next week, make the commitment to serve and care for your church and to begin doing that by by joining a small group Bible study, getting to know those who are there, sharing life with them, extending grace to them, and with their help, extending grace to those outside. Dear friends, serving and loving, caring for the church is not all that difficult. But we sure can make it be when we try to do it on our own. We sure can make it difficult when we try to do it apart from one another. When we try to be a community of individuals on islands. Instead, let us gather together around our common confession that Jesus is Lord. Let us serve one another with the gifts that God has given. Let us care for one another as we know and are known by our brothers and sisters in faith here at First Baptist West Albuquerque. Let's pray together and ask that God enable us to do just this.